you were experiencing performance anxiety with Mark Shea. This week, we have Robert Roth joining us. Robert is one-third of the criminally underrated band Truly. He's also half of the psychedelic folk duo Little Spirits. Robert's career is one of the most interesting stories to come out of 90s Seattle. From jamming with pre-Dave Girl Nirvana, to forming Truly with members of Screaming Trees and Soundgarden, to working with punk poet Jim Carroll, Robert's story is still adding chapters. Here's Performance Anxiety with Robert Roth. This is Robert Roth from Little Spirit. Performance Anxiety. Thank you for having me on the show. How far away is Olympia from Seattle? Uh, it's about an hour, 15 minute drive, maybe okay. an hour and a half, depending on traffic. Oh, it's not too yeah. bad. No, not not at all. But it, it, when when I grew up there, Seattle, really, really far. Oh yeah. And so, uh, being underage for a lot of the kinds of things I wanted to see, being young, the things I wanted to see were big concerts like Queen and Van Halen and Cheap Trick. I had to go up to Seattle, and we buy our tickets. You know, take a day off school and go to Seattle to go to a rock concert. Oh, so so what was your first concert? For well. For the, okay, my dad took me to a lot of jazz and stuff. After we went and saw the first, I guess, went in tears at the Paramount oh, wow. Theater in 1975 with uh, David Clayton Thomas back in the band singing, and that that was fantastic. But as far as uh, in 1979, when I was 13, I got to see my favorite band Kiss and and also my other favorite band Earth, Wind, and Fire. The same week at the same oh, place. Oh, like man. Four days apart. It was like in November of 79. And it was like Kiss's last gig or third or fourth to last gig with the original lineup. Oh, man. And, uh, that was super exciting. Well, was, those are some good, good. Uh, but then, you know, the next year I went saw Queen, which on the game tour, which was like live killers plus the game, which I think to oh, me, wow. even looking back, that probably was the best tour to. In, in my opinion, their best material. Right, right. And it was, that was amazing. And, and uh, I went with my 14, I, I was 14 on my first big date. So that was cool. <laughs> so my girlfriend was trying to make out with me the entire show. We were right up front. And I had like one eye open looking at the stage. <laughs> um, well, those are some good shows to start with. That's for sure. Yeah. Man. I saw Van Halen. Well, I said Van Halen. That was cool. That was the fair warning tour. Oh, so you got yeah. to, uh, so we were we, again, skip school. I was 15, 81. And then, uh, we, we, uh, hung around Seattle center and you could hear Eddie Van Halen sound check for like an hour. So oh, man. it was so loud and, and amazing. Um, who else? I think I said cheap trick. Um, back in those days, the who and the clash. Oh, wow. Fantastic. And T Bone Burnett with Mick Ronson playing guitar with it. You know, it, it, it's crazy to look back at, at the ticket price. And, and, and uh, let's see, we saw you, I saw you two on the war tour and got to meet Bono after the show. And, oh, wow. Um, anyway, jealous on some of these that, it was, Yeah, it's, it's crazy to look back. And they were, they were, you know, I guess affordable at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, to go see bands and buy records. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, you'd save your money and it was a big deal. You know. Yeah, yeah, we're making less, but you know, it still seems a lot more affordable than, than a lot of the tickets that uh, for, for the bigger names, at least when you when you go see, go to like around here, the big venue is uh, the Jiffy Lube Arena, and uh, uh-huh. that that's where all the you know the, the really huge artists go, and you you know, crap tickets are sixty five bucks. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. That's why I, yeah, that's what and and to be honest, and, and just. To let everyone know, I'm talking with Robert Roth from the band Truly and Little Spirits here. That's kind of why I started, besides the music being great, that's one of the reasons why I started following bands like Truly, um, you know, bands that weren't, that hadn't really hit yet. Um, bands went their first albums because they were, they would play the smaller clubs. Or yeah. to go see them. And, and you can even, one of the things that I learned early on is if you hang out afterwards, you can meet the guys in the band and, and sit down and talk with them for a while. And yeah. That, that's one of the things I always liked about uh, 
especially from the um, the nineties, the the Seattle. Even when you guys would come to the East Coast, I know you had a you know you you're, you're going from tour to tour to tour. But yeah, and well, I think that, that, yeah. Well, I mean, to me, I you know very early age, I started playing professionally even at a young age, fifteen, sixteen, and but I always really longed to be part of a music community. You know, mm-hmm. I think that the punk rock scene. Uh, and 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 in other places around the country and around the world that, that sometimes happen in real small places, college towns or even rural towns or you know in parts of the city where people can afford to live and, and be in bands. You know those little uh, those local scenes I think are, are what really uh, help good music gestate and 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 uh, versus just you know bands that come out of nowhere in the sub some right. suburb. You know, and you're like, yeah. okay, and they, those types of bands are mostly drawing on what they get through the media and the, and the bands that are out in their communities, going to shows, talking to to other bands, talking to fans, building a community. That's, I think that it, you know, that's how the Seattle scene became a scene. Is is it is just that whole uh, cross pollination of ideas amongst. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, I think truly was a, a perfect example of that because you had you you came in from a completely different band, Storybook Crooks, uh, with your brother in that, if I remember correctly, yeah. and and some other right. folks, and and uh, you started jamming with it was Mark first, correct? And you, you pick roll. It was Mark. truly, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then then uh, he spoke with Hiro Yamamoto. And uh, yeah. you know, a lot of times you'll hear about guys. Oh, no, I'm not going to play with these guys. Especially larger band, large, bigger names back in that time period, late 80s, early 90s, egos seemed to be outrageous because, I mean, you had yeah. bands like Guns N' Roses and stuff. And, and, and that I always loved about the music from that time period, especially especially Seattle. And, and, and I'll probably get hung up on, on your location here a little bit because that, that was what I I dove into it. I loved it. Once I found out about it, um, yeah. the side projects, you know, you'd have your main band and then you'd have another band that you were working on and, and, you know, nobody was afraid to work with other people. Right. And that's the one thing that I really love because you would get a guy who could play in, in a band and have a certain sound with one band. And, and they were just, everybody just seemed free to experiment and, and exp- I, I wonder, you know, as you're talking about that, I wonder if some of that isn't because the original, whatever the first wave or two of seattle bands were made up of musicians who had been doing it a while versus like maybe the punk rock bands of of uh you know the 70s maybe they were a little bit younger and so uh, by being around a little longer we people had their earlier interests they could go back to or just more willing to try new things and experiment you know the the grunge sound had really peaked in seattle by 89, by 1990, I think people were thinking about, well, what's the next step okay. creatively, musically? And uh, so by, but, you know, Pearl Jam and the sound, everything, you know, that's when the world got picked up on grunge. But right, in Seattle, right. a lot of us had had moved on prior to Nevermind. That, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Um. So, so you mentioned Nevermind. Not only moved on completely, I just mean... What else could be done, you know, with that and, and right. beyond that? So, right. Yeah. Expand that that palette that you guys had. That yeah. It kind of created because uh, it, it was based on a lot of different styles of music. But um, yeah. you mentioned Nevermind. The uniformity originally, even before before Truly, obviously there was Sub Pop and Charles Peterson's photos and yeah. Jack and Dino's signature production. And there, and there was a real conscious effort on Sub Pop to, to make it something uniform and like i said i think that that when truly came about we did the we had charles peterson do our photo as well but it was yeah. the first full color cover of charles peterson on it so yeah okay. we did 24 track recording whereas up till then i think it was strictly eight track maybe there was a few 16 track recordings so wow. we kind of took up the fidelity and the color and and we it was kind of part of forward momentum and, right, and change, right. you know. And I, at that time, I was a photography student up in Rochester, New York, and uh, yeah. I remember picking up uh, sub-pop singles and, and albums and EPs from sound. 
And, you know, Charles Peterson's work had a big impact on me. Uh, you know, the motion that you could see in it was just amazing. And yeah. uh, I, I tried to emulate that as much as I could unsuccessfully because I'm not, you know, not, not a professional photographer anymore. Did it for yeah. 10 years, but, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I haven't been as successful as he has, but um, yeah. I, I, I want to pick back up on, on something that you'd mentioned uh, when you mentioned Nevermind by Nirvana coming or the, the world kind of gravitating towards Nirvana. Well, it's like, it was like a second wave of grunge, but a much <laughs> larger. And, and that's when I finally accepted the term grunge as after a certain while, it was a label that everyone resented and Seattle band back then was like, Oh, we're not grunge or grunge is there's no such thing as grunge or right. whatever. But 25 years later, you just, it, you know, yeah. for the sake of conversation, we, we call it, we call it grunge, just like we call certain things punk. Right. You know, right. Which may or may not be punk, whatever. So before Nevermind blew up and, and brought some, some, uh, Therity, I guess, back into into music you could hear on the radio. You yeah. actually had a uh, the opportunity to play with with Kurt and and, and uh, yeah. I guess kind of jam with him. How did that happen? What what was that? Uh, what was the situation surrounding that? Well, um, my first and only band prior to truly uh, just broken up. Like you said, it was my brother John. It was my best friend from eighth grade who went to the Kiss concert with me. <laughs> um, and um, so we had gone through a lot of, you know, various formations. We we had started playing professionally, like when I was 16, playing big beer gardens up, up at Western Washington University and Evergreen State College for hundreds of people, other like punk new wave type bands. And we were on the local college radio. And, and uh, oh, wow. It was, you know, we we we. And I think as I was saying the other night when I was talking to you that what, why we were able to do that was that we played our own material and mm. most of the bands around at that time who were our age or even in their 20s, they were cover bands. So band, a band that took their own material somewhat seriously even was, was taken seriously. And there were, there were far and few between, believe it or not. Now that's it's a real, obviously, normal thing. It's yeah. hundreds of them. Um, so that, that was how we were able to... Uh, uh, progress at a, at, a, at a young. I forgot the question. Sorry. <laughs> what brought you together with Cobain? And I know that you. Oh, had, with, uh... okay. So yeah. So I got sidetracked there talking about my first band. So anyway, we had, sorry, we no had broken up and uh, riding the bus with uh, and Jonathan Poneman was on the bus and he was president of Sub Pop. So um, he asked me what was up with the band Starbuck Crooks and they were fans and and uh, so he was just had been keeping up on what we were up to. And uh, he asked me about the band. I said, we had just broken up. He said, Nirvana has just sort of kicked out slash Jason quit to replace hero in Soundgarden. Right. Jason Everman, right? What's Everman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So they, they didn't get along with with him as far as their outlook on things. And anyway, so, uh, Jonathan had said that Kurt was looking for somebody who could write songs, potentially sing a song or two on, on an album, and but mostly back him up on guitar. You know, but somebody more song-oriented, maybe more pop song-oriented even, um, okay. because Jason was, they kind of thought of him more as a metalhead or something. Uh, ah, okay. So... Uh, I went down to, or I had given a cassette to a friend of mine, Justin, who worked with Mark Lanigan, who gave the tape to Kurt. And I went to a Tad show at the Vogue and went into Kurt. And uh, he said, Mark gave me your tape, but I hadn't had a chance to listen to it yet. And uh, Kurt and I hung out for probably an hour, hour and a half, and just talked about music, drank beers. And uh, And listened to Tad. um, (laughs) <laughs> and listen to Tad too. Yeah, we did, yeah we listened. We caught the end of his set because we pretty we were talking the whole time um, out just you know trying to gate read each other's you know gauge each other's music taste and and right. all that and uh so um, got on really well and and uh, one of the things that he said was like you know I we want to smash guitars and Jason isn't into <laughs> smashing guitars and and uh, I I was fairly my equipment, even as a poor musician, <laughs> like, no, I'm, I'm down with that. Yeah. Um, 
So at, at the end of the conversation, he said, you know, it looks like we're on the same wavelength. We should get together and play when we get back from our, our tour. And they were like in a week or two for, for three weeks. And being in my early 20s and three weeks sounding like a million years to me or, you know, an indefinite, not real amount of time. Right. I said, well, by that time, I'm going to be another band. So if you want to try me out, you should do it before you leave. Tour. Yeah, and as it turns out, we they did. They schlepped all their gear up to my rehearsal space, and there there was was downstairs. So this that was a huge schlep up up some really old <laughs> stairs. But um, and they were so fucking loud. It was so impressive to me. It changed changed my life because mm-hmm. I brought in hundred watt uh, PV amp. That uh, it's called a PV vintage, and PV you know has a, a a sketchy reputation, but their early seventies amps were, were amazing. And, and Kurt knew that. Oh, he's got a PV vintage, <laughs> but Kurt had a big stack, uh, mic'd up through the PA Dad was miking his kick drum. I mean, it was like, it was full fucking concert volume loud, you know? Wow. And, uh, my amp, my PV vintage could not cope. So, uh, <laughs> I played through Kurt's rig and, and Kurt played through mine, but, uh, yeah, we played, um, a, a bunch of their songs and, um, I learned, I learned a couple on my own that they hadn't suggested like about a girl and Mr. Mustard. And, and we also just kind of jammed a lot, made a bunch of kind of noise, a lot of fun and uh, played one of my songs that, that Kurt really liked. He said it was very catchy. Oh, cool. And uh, I wrote, uh, and then I kind of waited to hear what was going to happen. They went on tour as a three piece and I had written a song for p- my potential joining the band called uh, Stain on Your Plane. It was just uh, seven inch for sub pop was stained, and then never mind. Had it on a plane, yeah, yeah. And my demo went missing around that time, <laughs> honestly. I but it did. It has gone missing. Breaking news. I'd love to find that, but I have boxes of who knows. It's probably in there somewhere. But no, it's just one of those coincidences that just you know. But uh, <laughs> you guys so, didn't happen uh, to record but, that session, did you? No, I would have felt weird. I think at the time, I would have felt you know, like, hey, can I record? Like you know, yeah. But I, I, But um, anyway, so um, Kurt and I hung out for another hour or so, just talking and sharing the last few cigarettes we had and and discussing what the band could look like with with me in the band and and, uh, without coming out and saying it. I think we both were like, well, maybe Chad's not the best drummer for the band. He's, He's a great part of the band. Yeah, there's something kind of missing sonically. And uh, I think that Kurt had said his favorite drummer was was John Bonham, and mine was Moon. And it's interesting Choices. because yeah, he ended up with with Dave Grohl, who's who's very much a, a Bonham for our times yes. uh, in terms of really heavy, solid, and uh, yeah, very personal feeling. And then uh, Pickerel is just you know throwing his sticks. He's, he's a magician <laughs> and a wizard on the drum. So I you know that that worked out. But and maybe in some other universe, I don't know. We we could have ended up in the same band. Pickerel was playing in a the jury or whatever they were called with Lanigan and Kurt and Chris. And oh, uh, so yeah. it, it could have gone another direction. Um, is that, is that the group that did the uh, blues songs? For- they did all, all that belly, belly covers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. And, and I think three of those songs are on the Nirvana box. Set. Yeah. Mark on, so it's Mark, Chris and Kurt. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So then, so then you ended up, uh, Jamming with Mark in the studio. Was it in the well, studio? Well, yeah. So I, I talked to Kurt, and, and he based, he just said, you know, we are going to say a three-piece. We toured that way. We, we liked it. And uh, a week later, I, I heard that Mark Pickerel from Kelly Canary from an uh, all-girl uh, oh, grunge gosh. group called Dickless. Dickless. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love. It's going to sound weird, yeah. but yeah, I love Dickless and uh, I saw, Teen Angels. I saw them, and they practiced in that same building too. So I used to with them oh, when man. I was down there taking breaks or whatever. They were they were super super cool and and a, and a you know yeah. Saddle Tramp, yeah, and then uh, Sweet Teeth. Yeah. That, man, I've, I've got I've got uh, I think they only have two seven inches, I, I believe that I know of. Yeah, uh, it was it was it was kind of short short lived, but they were cool. They came out with Teen Angels, which was uh, kind of similar, yeah. but. But but so uh, so she's the one who, who gave me Mark's number because um, Donna was Mark's girlfriend. John was a bass. They all worked at a place called Peaches Records where Lanigan worked. Dylan from Earth and and I think Pickerel worked there for four hours before he just left because he didn't like <laughs> and quit. But uh, yeah, there was a lot a lot of musicians worked there. So I called Mark and he 
for you to, to get together with me, which looking back at, as you said, that's kind of strange. Like he didn't even know who I was. Maybe he did. I, I don't think he did. And I, I think to, I, mu I must have sent him a tape or something. I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I convinced him somehow to come over to our house in the U District and play. And I, I, he really loved the songs. I think Color, The Color is Magic was one of them. And okay. Had um, another song called She is Bread, which I, I later medicined because it was basically Dancing Barefoot by Patti Smith, but I had never oh. heard Dancing Barefoot. I wrote it without ever hearing it. <laughs> heard it and was like, okay, we're not, can't do that. Um, yeah. It's already you know, an amazing song with these same chords. So, um, but now we had another and another couple of things maybe that ended up, but he, he, he said he really liked it. He worked at Sub Pop at the time. And he set up a meeting with Jonathan, and I came down and played him some of my four-track oh, okay. tapes. And uh, so, how did Hero get involved? Um, Hero got involved uh, played our very first show with at a place called the Off Ramp, and in, in another band called Sister Double Happiness. I remember Sister Double Happiness. Oh my gosh, bringing back that, memories yeah. of college. That was our very first show. It was. Act and sold out. Everybody was there, um, from Kim Thile to Calvin from Be Happening, Pop Crowd. It was oh, wow. our very first gig, and wow. just kind of o overwhelming, but really, really exciting to have Mark back there with his sticks flying around, <laughs> and it was super exciting. And for our first gig, I think it went really well. Now, were you guys? Were you guys a quartet at that point? Was Chris? We were just a three piece because okay. my—that's what my previous band had been. And uh, on bass, what, uh, the bass player was Chris Quinn, okay, who okay. actually played bass on the first three songs on our on our Sub Pop EP. Because um, oh, Hero okay. only played on Married in the Playground on that EP. So a lot of people know that, but uh, um, so anyway. Uh, now that Married in the Playground was the only thing we recorded as a four piece. It's the only thing that Chris ever played guitar. Oh, okay. That's how that's, I, played, I didn't know yeah. that. So, uh, so that's how, how it started. I think like a couple, that was like maybe October 1990. And, you know, the month before that we had gone into Robert Lang studios and recorded Colors, Magic, Heart and Lungs and the song Truly, which became titled Truly Drowning when the name of the band came up. Let's call it Truly and song the same title as the band. Yeah. yeah I was not sure about the band name, but um, Chris had come up with that while we were in the studio. Mark had just quit the trees a week prior to, to the session, and Chris okay. had just quit his band that morning. Oh, wow. So they were just going to be my session guys, you know. And uh, so while in the studio, there was a lot of, of excitement, and uh, I we, we would be a band. And Chris said, <laughs> how about Truly? And uh, so that's kind of a weird name for a band. But uh, So the next uh, Monday, Mark goes to work and tells Jonathan about the recording session and and asked Jonathan, what should we call the band? And Jonathan's like, how about True? Oh. So two, two people came up with it. We figured that that was something to it. Yeah, so. that meant something. Well, yeah, we got used to it <laughs> after a while. That, and the, uh, the EP, yeah. right? Okay. Like, a, like a, almost a full year after we had really tracked those songs. So those were oh, wow. buried in the playground. When, when uh, Sub Pop decided to do it, now, it's funny because when I went down to play Jonathan, the demos and, and some of the stuff he had just found out that day that Nirvana was leaving sub pop fucking pissed. Oh, okay. And it's all blown over and they all became friends. But at that, that day, man, it was another three piece band with, you know, some yeah. decent songs and, and uh, him like, you know, throwing papers around his desk. And then when I put in the cassette, he was like, he was very receptive. <laughs> That's he good. Was very open to it, and and I, and he was a big big fan and champion of the band. Uh, he came to us in the studio, first cut chlorine when it was going to be for sub pop. I mean, oh, awesome. eleven and a half minutes song. It's like Marquee Moon or yeah. television or something, you know. So anyway, um, but that that playground was a song that I had written. Um. Around that time after Hero had joined and it was a real pop song and I was kind of afraid to, it was more the kind of song I would have, would have done with my previous band. 
but everyone really liked it. And I think that, as I, as I said earlier, people in Seattle were moving on away from grunge. My conversation with Kurt in, at the Vogue that night, one of the things he, he said, because I was just getting turned on to Nirvana and Melvin's. Like I had kind of come from a more of a psychedelic and pop and, and Paisley underground, whatever kind of world, yeah. punk rock too, you know, in the mid late eighties. So I was, you know, bleach blew me away, like heaviness of it. Yeah. Nice. It was so melodic. And, and I, um, but uh, he, Kurt was like, no, we want to go. We want to be more like the Pixies. We want to get the college kids. Literally what he said. And I was okay. like, oh, okay, cool. And, and so uh, he, he was kind of mentally moving on from that point. So a song like Married in the Playground and a, a, a poppier thing that was, was people were real receptive to it. So they kind of, Jonathan and Mark had really, you know, t- took me aside and said, look, we're going to do this EP, but this song has to be on there. And so uh, that was it. And that, that one, you know, was in the top 10 requested songs of the day at the local FM big station, which is called 107.7. Okay. Whatever. And so, you know, it, it, it's, it was a good, good song for us in the, in the Northwest. Well, the song that really sticks out to me on that is heart and lungs. And I know yeah. that uh, based, especially now based, you know, talking with you for uh, a couple of years on and off now and, and uh, the re-release of the single soundtrack, what yeah. happened? How did, how did that get left off the, the album? Well, what, what happened was uh, about a week before it was pressed, um, there was a certain amount of political pressure from managers of, of some of the bands uh, to get more of their songs on there to, in, in the case of Screaming Trees, you know, the band, this is not because of the band, but right. uh, their management uh, really wanted them on the album because it was looking like the album was going to be a bigger deal than had been sitting in the can for a while. Okay. And it was the weight of the Seattle explosion that kind of, that was the, the real thrust to that movie actually coming out. And, and, uh, yeah. um, so anyway, and, uh, added more songs by these other bands and that's their songs, not even in the movie. Um, nearly lost. you's not in singles. Oh, great man. song, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, but, but that, that song literally took our, the spot of heart and lungs. Wow. We were on the advanced CDs and whatnot, but, um, Oh, and it, it, it sold a lot. It, it, would, it would have changed our lives financially. Um, but who knows? Maybe, you know, I, I think we ended up eventually getting signed to Capitol Records and, and making cool music. And, and who knows how things would have gone had, had that happened. And maybe not as well. Maybe it's right. cool to see it finally have come out. And uh, You got signed to Capitol and worked on your record. Uh if you read any review, I mean, they, everybody says it is, it is an amazing album, and it is, I agree with that completely. But it came out in '95. Mm, what what yeah. what was the reason for the gap, and what were you guys doing during that that time? Well, a lot, or I know you were you guys played at Lollapalooza in '92. Yeah. Okay. So, well, it, we started working on what became that record, but I guess our, our first album when we were still on sub pop and two of those songs were recorded as far back as 92 chlorine, the, the last song mm-hmm. and a song called hot summer in 1991. And, uh, they were sort of cor- cornerstones of this sort of, I don't know the, the theme of the album. Okay. Well, I won't say concepts necessarily because that's a little too particularly deliberate. But uh, there was a theme that that I was I was working on, and uh, so in '92 we played a lot. I mean, really, the the EP came out at the end of '91. A lot of the promoting of that and, and playing behind it was was in '92, and then. Uh, 93, we put out another Sub Pop single and an EP. And uh, at that point, Sub Pop were, were having financial trouble and couldn't afford to finish the record and for the amount of money that we had previously agreed. Essentially what happened was we got dropped from the single soundtrack and our budget went from 
$25,000 to make a record to not enough to make a record. Um, in our, for, in our, the kind of record we wanted to make. And, and I was trying to do it and uh, it was hard. And, uh, so, uh, based on the strength of the EP early, you know, I, I perceived it as being a strong contender for what was going on. I felt really confident that we would get signed by a major label. And that was my way to finish the record. Now is just like get a nice computer and some mic. You know, yeah, and, no kidding. But then the only way to finish a record, get signed by a major label. So I was set out, I was determined to, to finish this record and we did get signed to Capitol, and that that whole process took a while. They wanted us to wait even longer to record. Oh, um, really? And I really felt an urgency. It, I felt like too much time was going. But we did take about, okay, let's see, we got um, signed in late 93. The record came out in mid-95, so that tells you how long, you know, yeah. that whole major label process and that was with me being in a rush. In other words, we got we signed our contracts. I think and finally signed it in December. I had us in the studio in January, oh, wow. spending money demoing and just kind of living at at, a, at my friend's cheap punk rock studio, but still twenty four track nice. studio, just writing and and, and woodshedding and, and creating. Um, I wanted to get it out. It kind of it was like two two major tracking sessions and then finishing all that and then flying to New York and mixing for five weeks. And I remember reading somewhere that uh, some time between you guys getting signed and the album coming out that everybody you had worked with at Capitol had gotten the axe. Well, it, was, it wasn't everybody, but it was the people that had signed us. They were called Revolution Records, and they had okay. signed Big Chief, and they had signed Truly. They were trying to sign a band called Neurosis. They were trying to sign the John Spencer Blues Ex Explosion. Okay, yeah. And um, they were... Uh, they were what I mean. I guess you could call it not a boutique label, um, a subsidiary label of okay. Capital. Okay. And where they were going to have a lot of autonomy to do what they wanted. And I mean, they wanted to release Chlorine, an eleven half minute song, to radio as our wow. first single. They had some kind of cool ideas, <laughs> but but you know the struggle to make that record and finish it. You know, I mean, I had looked. You know, getting signed to Capital Records was a dream come true, but I, I knew that that wasn't. That was the beginning because, you know, the highway was littered with bands with major label contracts whose records never came out. We got dropped within a week. You know, just oh, yeah, the yeah. casualties were everywhere, including some very successful bands. Um, so I, I was pretty realistic about our chances, even having gotten signed. Um, in the 70s, you were given a few chances. They believed in you. They would give you records. You kind of had to, to prove something on your first record. And uh, so... Uh, that stories comes out and you guys tour and how does the second album come out? Because it, you guys left Capitol and yeah. the, the we album, asked to leave. We weren't proud. right. You did. You did ask to leave Capitol. And uh, yeah, so your next record comes out on uh, it was, I, I know my copy is on thick records and yeah. um, there's a, it's still definitely a truly album, but it's, a different sound to it, um, maybe yeah. more focused. Um, the songs are, are, are uh, I guess I don't say not as long or not, a, but they're they're just everything seems to be a little more focused and um, uh, a little more electronics, a little more keyboards and stuff. Uh, was that intentional? Was that was that a, a sound you guys were definitely looking to? to yeah. To well, thing about feeling you up was it, it was never uh, meant. To a real follow-up kind of thing because it was mostly demos that were left over. Oh, okay. And when we uh, left Capitol, we were approached by uh, an independent label in Chicago who wanted to do an EP of some of the things that we had left over. And uh, as we were leaving Capitol, they were having us go in the studio. And uh, in that we, we were in invited back to England because of the the success of Fast Stories from Kid Coma over there in the press, and we had Fast Stories in their top twenty records of nineteen five, even though we never made the video, we had K Rock in L A playing our song. Um, we, we cost a hundred thousand dollars to release a single, apparently in in those wow. days. Uh, so, but we were getting airplay, so all these all these opportunities to to make that record successful 
were stymied by the fact that capital was undergoing a lot of uh, turbulence in, in terms of uh, money and EMI was going to potentially be up for sale. So there's okay. all, all these, you know, factors. And so I turned in the song, one of the demos called Leather at Tears. Now that time has been It's just a song that I have kind of just haunted my brain. Four and a half months of touring, this song had had just been following me around. Yeah. We were playing it at Soundcheck in Europe, and this is while we're playing pretty much uh, fast story material live, like really heavy, loud shit live. Yeah. I was had kind of written this cheerful, wistful <laughs> uh, pop song, almost Beach Boys. What's that? It almost yeah, like a Beach right? Boys feel Phil, too. Kind of Phil Spector. Yeah, and it's one of my favorite songs. I love it. I absolutely oh, love thank it. you, man. Thank you. And so, uh, and and just like Married in the Playground, when everybody really loved it, and I was like, oh, okay. it was so it felt refresh refreshing compared to the kind of more uh, melancholy stuff that that right. we you know, and, and especially on Fast Stories from Kid Coma. So, and I think with the the kind of Kurt dying and and whatnot, I think that people were kind of trying to forget about a lot of things and not wallow. Following in, in darkness and in, in dark music, people yeah. I, I think around the Northwest were kind of wanting a break break from that in some way. Okay, um, and that's why I think a band like the Presidents of the United States, or I think they were like the biggest band in in '95 in, in the Northwest. Oh. You know, around in, just in terms of like the local scene, the people that were all around going to the grunge shows. Everyone kind of had flipped a switch. That I, I honestly just feel it was a need to escape. Um, it's, you know, it's just forget to take a break from the, you know, heavy times, Yeah, but you know, Seattle's never the same. The the dance music on dot com is taking over the whole city. That's another story. Yeah. They're about to do the same over here by me. (laughs) Just leftover songs and, and like, like leather at tears, uh, capital heard leather at tears. They wanted, um, us to do a whole album, those types of songs while we left. Okay. Um, we, I, I really felt like that would have been a big mistake. I think have to follow a record like Fast Stories, and there was even a suggestion that maybe we change our name oh, to wow. fit this new pop sound. You know, really? I mean, it was just like it was so far from the kind of conversations we were having with them in '93 when they were telling us to not worry about singles and to push the envelope and be an album-oriented band, like. Pink Floyd or Zeppelin, like, you know, we're like, really? Are you serious? Because yeah. this would be a single. Movie. No, just don't worry about that. Like, you know, like, cool. Then, all right. And anyway, the, it just the climate had really, really changed a lot. It had really changed since Kurt died, I think. Um, people were looking for hits, quick, quick hits, money, get to the point. So in another, in, in, on an art, art, artistic side, I think I wanted to prove that I was awesome good songwriter, you know, because that was my reputation prior to Truly was, you know, I'm a songwriter, not not a not Eddie Van Halen, you know. Right, yeah. Um and uh but uh with fast stories I, I kind of was a little self conscious that we were seen as some noise making band. And even though looking back I realized that's not true. I just wasn't getting any respect, I felt like from from label, from people around me as a as a songwriter, right. you know. Um, and, uh, there's bands like, um, Supergrass and Elliot Smith and all these, oh, Supergrass you Supergrass know. is great. I love Supergrass. Yeah. We, we, we played a show with them in Detroit that was a lot of fun. You mentioned in a whole yeah. slew of bands that I used to listen to, like, I love Big Chief, Supergrass. I've got just about everything Big Chief has ever done. So that's. <laughs> no, that's great. I'll have to pass that on. You know that Mark Dancy did the cover record. I cover did. Record. Okay. Yeah, you get truly has a new EP, uh, a new single out. Uh, is and let's jump into that. I, I would I want to touch on uh, Twilight Curtains in in a minute or two, but I, but you guys do have a new uh, single out. Downloadable links is it's not. Um, There's a downloadable link if you buy it. Okay, 
so, but, it, but that's the only way to get it. Is it, am I correct with that? Yeah. The only way to get the downloadable link is, is to buy the uh, little vinyl. <laughs> so was that, uh, are you doing that just for the fans or is it just because everything is downloadable? And, uh, I don't know if, if you be a little bit like me in the sense that when you buy music, you want to touch it. I'm yeah, I mean, I think that the it, it. I want the whole world to hear it, and so um, people will buy the vinyl and give them a chance to the fans to have it first. Okay, and uh, and at some point when we we uh, we'll, we'll release it digitally as well. Okay, um, but I want people who buy the vinyl to feel like they have something exclusive, and uh, in Find into something that uh, you can hang on to, but it's also uh, something you believe in, like an artist that you believe in. And uh, I think it's it's easy when music's free and, and, and disposable. I do I do want it to be out there, and I'm I'm happy to have it be free at some. Well, I, um, maybe not in the first two months. Yeah. <laughs> um, I agree. I mean, I like. I want I want people to to cherish cherish that thing and. and Hey, I had this, you know, a few months before you could just listen to it on Spotify. And that that's exactly what I love about about this kind of stuff. I love finding finding the but I I don't feel like I've I own it if I just download it. Even if I've paid for the download, I just I don't yeah. feel like it's mine. Yeah. Um I want I want to ask you a couple questions about uh, Twilight Curtains. Um how did that come about? Cuz that's uh it seems like a whole bunch of of uh a couple songs from uh, uh, "Feeling You Up" on it, but there's also some covers on it, um, yeah. some snippets here and there. And how did that come about? And do you consider that a, a, a truly album, or is it just a Not compilation? Really, no. I consider it like a, a like a compilation of sorts. It's sort of it's sort of even uh, it's similar to "Feeling You Up," but it's at least with "Feeling You Up," we had a few weeks to take the, the pieces of demos and whatnot and go. Let's see. If, I can make this into a cohesive album, not just a collection of songs. And so I, I, I did what I could, whereas uh, Twilight Curtains, it was, it was coming out on a British label, um, things on there that had never been released. So it's kind of a odds and sods kind of thing, right. you know? And as I was saying earlier, I really, you know, before we uh, took a long break or, or, or broke up or whatever we um working on some really interesting things that were really far from what you hear on past stories there's no way to go back to 1998 and, and recreate that it wouldn't make sense now although i i think it would have held up it's just we we were we were still very much in a in a experimental creative forward momentum phase and in a, i don't think whatever the real follow-up to that album, you know, it just, it didn't happen. Right. So to me, feeling you up is kind of an, it's an outtakes record too. So I, I kind of feel like what we've been working on lately is, is my attempt at a real proper follow-up to fast stories. But you know, I, that uh, is something that because I have a kid and, and we've toured and there's been other projects that, you know, it's uh it's taken on its own life and it's not, it's not a turn to the nineties or definitely not a return to, late nineties when, right. when whatever we're working on then it's, it's, it's a new album and okay. it's uh it's, it draws upon our, our sound in a, in a real genuine way, just because it's just the way we play. It's the way we sound, but it's, it's, you know, trying to do some new things. One of the things I really enjoyed about fast stories and feeling you up eggways that you have, is that yeah. something that you have in mind as you're recording or writing a song? Well, I think that that is a sort of, I, I do tend to make these sort of like sonic, landscape things it's really just like my therapy and my drawing in the sand or whatever you know it's like you know painting lovely pictures with sound you know it's, it's, and i i it's at the same time it's there's a real deep feeling about it and i uh i feel like it it's sort of a, a third voice to the music it's sort of a, a soundtrack if the music's the soundtrack or the narration or something in between um and nowadays with the computer now I get to do my little doodling instead of, you know, like on a notebook or, or whatever, after by splicing things in, they tend to happen at the intros and the outros of the songs, which you can hear on the new single. Like you hear 
the interludes kind of included on on Wheels on Fire and and uh, there's just um, there's more of an opportunity to to have that part of the music when I'm working now using the computer. How did you get uh, involved with Jim Carroll? Um, Jim's wife, Rosemary Carroll, was our attorney and had been finally getting close to finishing the tracking for Fast Stories. Um, I had heard from our manager that uh, they were doing a movie for Basketball Diaries and that Jim Carroll needed someone to write with. They, the director of the movie wanted him to have a couple of his, his or new Jim Carroll songs in the film. Okay. And so uh, a few days later, called me on the phone and we talked for probably two hours. Wow. And fantastic. It was like getting a free reading, you know, like just oh, his yeah. story and, and, you know, humor, you know, just the stories one after another were amazing. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, but yeah, we hit it off and we, and within a few days, you know, I, I had sent him in the mail and we, Literally, like, would hum stuff over the phone. But you mostly just, I would listen to hours of his stories every time <laughs> we spoke on the phone. And um, so uh, when I when we went to New York to mix the Truly record, um, Jim had, had called me and left a message on Studio Answering Machine and said, Hey, Robert, uh... Don't be surprised, man, but Allen Ginsberg might be coming by uh, <laughs> to uh, I had this song Angel Head, which was referencing um, Owl, the poem by Allen Ginsberg and the oh, angel and the hipsters, sorry, dynamo of the night, you know, that whole thing. And right, uh, right. so uh, that whole day, I was really nervous that Allen Ginsberg was going to be showing up to maybe perhaps read some poetry at the end of this, made out of the song. And um, I, I still hadn't finished my vocals and I was trying to figure out a couple lines and, and, and whatnot. And, uh, anyway, um, but, uh, so at the end of that record and Alan didn't show up, apparently, oh. uh, Jim said that he had to go hang out with, uh, Johnny Depp because, uh, Johnny might play, uh, Kerouac in the, on the road <laughs> film. So the guys, if he, if he shows up, but if he doesn't, don't be bummed out or anything. Oh my God. <laughs> but you know who showed up was Brian Johnson and Malcolm and Rick Rubin. Oh, wow. And I was sitting at the piano desperately trying to finish like one or two lines to this song and uh, nervous that Ginsburg was going to be showing up any moment. And then they walked in and I just kind of felt annoyed and invaded and kind of probably <laughs> or whatever. And like later, like that was, you know, those guys seem so fucking cool and you just kind of blow them off. Like what's that? Anyway, <laughs> So, the, the, but after after we finished that record, uh, two days later, uh, I met Jim at West Village at Cafe Orland, and we took a cab up to Williamsburg and and worked in this guy named Oliver's little studio, and he did the vocals to these songs. And uh, long story short, and Lenny Kay from the Patti Smith Group worked on one, wow. one of them with Jim when I wasn't piano. And um, what ended up happening was. Uh, person who was the music supervisor to the film uh, she she had been Quentin Tarantino's music supervisor on Pulp Fiction but really all she did was get the legal life didn't pick any of those songs uh, Tarantino picked every single one of those tunes not but surprised her yeah shame went way up and she was all of a sudden music supervisor to every film <laughs> coming out in the next two years Jeez. her name was uh, Karen Rockman and her brother was Ricky Rockman from Headbangers Ball oh and okay Karen Rockman was bragging to Rosemary about having never read any of Jim's poetry, never read Basketball Diaries, and didn't particularly like his voice and didn't really want it on the album. Wow. And for a movie about his life, um, he was not good enough to be in as a vocalist that's, singer of his own insane. material. So uh, what ended up happening was uh, got Pearl Jam on the soundtrack. Uh, they flew Jim out. Pearl Jam flew Jim out wow. and basically give the middle Jeez. finger to the label and say, well, here, here's Pearl Jam. Yeah. Here's oh. Jim Carroll. So that was a win, yeah. win for, for him and them. But our yeah. songs didn't make it in the movie. And oh, they actually wow. asked me doing the, the scoring. Oh, wow. I'm like, sure. They sent me some clips. And, <laughs> and Eno and The Edge were, had, had, were, were the ones doing the, the scoring. And they had dropped out. And 
I lost out to, to Graham Ravel. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he did everything. So I probably would have been way over my head, but anyway. <laughs> well, I want to ask you a, a question about some of your gear. Are you a gearhead as far as uh, yeah, guitars? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a more of a recording gearhead, our freak who's out on, on every little part of the guitar. Yeah. And, and you know, like, I'm, I'm not that kind of a gearhead. Like, I don't work on my guitars, that kind of stuff. Right, right. But I'm very into... Um, ways certain gear works in, in, in certain types of material and, and that includes microphones, compressors, EQs, okay. guitars, pedals, you know, that kind of stuff, like the the architecture of recording and okay. and for live for that matter too, like how to get across a, a sound live. Like everyone these days uses these little combo amps that sound great. But there's something missing when I go to shows from the days where our players had these big amps and kind of filled the room in yeah. smaller clubs where these combo amps. Yeah, you know, the, I know it come, it's coming through the PA, too. But, you know, if you noticed when we played in D.C., I have this massive, like, 70s fender um, cabinet. Yeah. With I want on it. And anyway, so oh, yeah. I'm into that gear, not because it's the most vintage, expensive, whatever. Um, all, well, the, the amp kind of has become, um, but uh, it's just because it, it, it moves a certain frequency. Okay. And it, and it doesn't, it, affect, it hits your body a certain way. So I'm a real, yeah, I'm, a, I'm more, I'm like a, I'm a connoisseur chef of sounds like that. That sounds that feel good, taste good, you know? Right, right. Um, so I get, I'm a gearhead in that sense, you know, gear that, that, Pushes those emotional buttons, you know. That's why I'm, I'm a, I still have the, the Mellotron. Oh wow, man! This awesome. is my studio, by the way. It's a mess right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see it. It's awesome. Well, because you get this great sound uh, on songs like "So Strange" and uh, "The Possessions." You get this like wet, swirly sound on your guitar. I've, I've tried to get something similar to it, and I, I've failed terribly. What what kind of effects do you do to get sounds like? In the in the truly days, I, I stumbled on chorus echo tape delay, and it's uh, my my first band from Olympia. We had a, a guy who was our sen- second guitar player who was quite a bit older than us. He was you know kind of around in the prog rock days, and then kind of around in the, in the new wave days, and he brought a lot of cool tricks to to it. Uh, like the Ebo and oh, okay, yeah. the Roland Chorus Echo. And, and those are all things I ended up doing later, not maybe directly because of him, but but probably now that I think about it. Um, but uh, so the, but as, as far as the sounds go, I, I just think that kind of sounds I heard in my head. And I was a fan of the shoegaze kind of bands and, and even oh, yeah. stuff like Cocteau Twins yep. and, and, and my bloody Valentine. But I kind of, I wanted to have a very American, very rainy Northwest, you know, kind of sound. Right. And uh, to me, like uh, the Roland tape delay drenched in, in reverb and, and saturated and kind of on the bird blowing up. That was my version of, of Northwest shoegaze or something, just some kind of like, you know, overtones that you can kind of get lost in yeah. and kind of enjoy as waves of sound. That's the sound that uh, I would always hear in my head as I was trying to play, and I heard I heard it in Truly's music. I heard it in some of Failure's music. That was the sound I always wanted to create. Oh, that's cool, man! So, Thank you. Now uh, working on music with Little Spirits. Yeah. Up with, uh, Star Anna. She's uh, after, and this time it's a duo. Is it, it's, I'm assuming it's still a duo. Yeah. How did you meet up with Star Anna, and how did that all come about? Well, she's been a, a really uh, well loved, very popular artist in the Northwest for like 10, 15 years. She uh, did even a little touring with Pearl Jam when they did their 20th anniversary for 10. Right, right. Um, and she's, you know, uh, Sort of uh, pushed at an 
in an early point in her career as a alt country kind of artist. Okay. And I met her probably about a year and a half ago. Um, I had been working at, for a music program that puts on music at the airport. I'm not doing that anymore okay. as of the last half a year, but I did it for a few years. And she was one of the artists that came through. And out of all, all of the artists that I had met out there, I mean, let, well, I'll, I'll rephrase that. Out of all the musicians that I met that were doing that, the gigs at the airport, he was the only one who I really felt was an artist, you know, okay. or, or one of the few. There's a few others. But uh, so we just we hit it off. And, and, and uh, she was talking a lot about her recording. had been doing down in L.A., working with uh, Ty Bailey, who plays some keyboards on the Neutrally single and who was our touring keyboard player when we went to Europe. Oh, um, when, we, when we reformed, he's now pl- playing in Katy Perry's band, traveling the world the last Man. few years. Um, anyway, uh, amazing keyboard player. And anyway, they were working together and playing me some of that stuff and, and eventually asked me to play guitar on her new record. And then next thing you know, uh, she had a bunch of gigs lined up and decided she didn't want to do them with her band. She wanted to oh. form this duo with me and that we would do these shows. And so uh, we formed the, the duo and like, I think three or four days later, we're, we're, we're playing the Crocodile Cafe on a packed Friday night <laughs> wow. and just the ground running. And we probably played about 50, 60 shows in the last couple of months. Oh, wow. Um, play a lot. Yeah. Well, you guys have a, a an album and camp that, that you can, yeah. that people can uh, buy a physical yeah. copy, which, which what I did because I need to have that, that CD in yeah. my hand or I don't own it. And in the, uh, immediate future is there any new music coming out from either band yeah little spirits is doing a seven inch for mike mccready's label you know so we've been working on that this week it's getting close and um are also working on a full-length album so we have a few more songs great uh in in the can as they say that we're working on We're, we're writing and performing a lot um when that record comes out i'm not i'm not exactly sure but i think the single will be out uh hopefully by the end of summer early fall Okay, and who knows? Maybe we'll we'll do an EP before the full record comes out. Um, Truly has uh, EP that we are trying to finish up and put out on a label in Europe in Holland, and uh, so that that will be available domestically in some. That's just try to get the ball rolling with uh, with Truly until we get a, a, a full record done. I mean, uh, there's also. The reissue possibility of fast stories, which I get a- asked about a lot. Two days. So, <laughs> from uh, me. <laughs> <laughs> you're one of them. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, uh, and we're looking at label flotation that, that's doing, um, did the latest seven inch is interested in doing fast stories. Um, oh, cool. And, but we're, we're not sure whether we're going to pull the trigger on that yet or not. Okay. We're, Wait and see if uh, Capital is still thinking about it because and, and try to figure out where we stand with them. In the meantime, we might just force the issue on Bandcamp ourselves. It's been remastered. Um, we're going to add some extra tracks to it. It's the, the remastered Bandcamp version has Aliens on Alcohol, which was on the, on the original record. It's on the double vinyl. Okay. And it, it was supposed to be on the CD and it just wouldn't fit. Well, it's a great track. And it came out on the, on the, uh, one truly EP. Yeah. That got amputated. Strictly oh. um, because of, we, no one could figure out what, what song to cut. And that seems, and I don't know if that was the right choice or not. I, I think that, uh, there was a big argument about whether it should be that song or so strange. And it was, it was a tough choice. Oh. I, I picked oh. aliens on alcohol. I lost that yeah. battle, which was fine. You know, they're both, <laughs> both, our songs and, and yeah. so it's fine, but it's good to ha- that it'll be included on this new version digitally. And I haven't heard the new master yet, but I, I Ed Brooks who engineered the first sub pop EP, he mastered the latest truly seven inch. So I, I trust him and, yeah. and uh, I don't think he would take things too far, or do any damage. So uh, um, I'm looking forward to hearing that and, and getting that out. And then uh, trying to, uh, Force the issue with the vinyl. Uh, um, get that out early next year. We'll see. You know. 
Last thing before I let you go, uh, are you listening to anything right now that might surprise me? Hmm. That, that, uh, I'm always looking for new stuff to listen to. A lot of what I listen to. What's that? Because I'm always looking for new stuff to listen to. Oh, okay. Uh, I always get stumped on this one. <laughs> and, and I do I do listen to, to uh, a lot of new, new music. I listen to a lot of old music. Um, let's see. Well, man, you know, I've been, because it's been a little rainy the last couple of days um, and a little gloomy. I, I, I listened to Ohio Players on YouTube last night when I oh. to cheer myself up because that, that was my jam when I was nine years old, you know, <laughs> um, that and, and Kiss, as I said. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Robert Hale, I, I appreciate your time. Thank you for, yeah. so much for joining me tonight. Let me sip something. You got quickly. it. I'll join you. <laughs> Just water, but anyway, it's slightly carbonated, so uh, it feels like I'm drinking something with you. Uh, yeah, I've got some um, Buffalo Trace bourbon going. Oh, let's see, I wish now I speak. <laughs> um, it's still early here. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.